Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and chips and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We have a great chat room with some very special folks that join us every week, so don't miss out. Join the chat room today. Okay, Rav, now, you may have to fill in for me today, since I've got a little bit of this, uh, what, spring cold, uh, and as long as I don't have a coughing spasm or something, I should be okay to go. But if I, we, we have rehearsed that you will step in and fill in. So tell us about your chat room. Loosen up. Get ready to talk to all the folks. Well, hello, everyone. It is wonderful to talk to you, and it would be great if you could come join me in the chat room as well. We have a marvelous group of people there. You know, I think of, I think of the chat roomies as, you know, being my friends on the journey. And we are all learning from Eldon and his guests. And, uh, we pose our questions in there. We, uh, expand on the subject. We make everything personal and practical. So you can get all of that in the chat room. And if you can't tune into the chat room live, you can always go back and look at it in the archives. But if you can come into it live, do come in and at least say hello. You don't have to contribute if you don't want to, but say hello. I'd like to see you there. So that's at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. That's a really good point that you made. You know, well, two points. First of all, I think I know that I and my guests are often learning from our listeners. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's a reciprocal process. But the other good point is this is a syndicated show. And so it airs at different times and re-airs at different times on other networks. And so if you're listening on BBS, you're listening on 12radio.com, uh, you're listening on BTO, you know, wherever you're listening, you can still go to the uh, chat room. You can see the archive files. You can see what the conversation was. You can browse through that. And particularly, we very often have a video of our host, or of our guest, I should say, that we show during, um, you know, our breaks. So, and, and the video is there. They can, they can go, they can visit, they can see what the conversation was, and they can watch the video, right? That's it. Okay. In our Spotlight of the Week segment, this week we turn our attention to free speech. In America, we sometimes take for granted certain rights, like that of free speech. Our country's history suggests that we simply shouldn't be so cavalier about our rights. We have seen all sorts of speech determined to be abusive and therefore unlawful, and some of this makes perfect sense. However, of late we have seen more and more speech become unlawful. Take, for example, H.R. 347 the Federal Restricted Buildings and Grounds Improvement Act of 2011, which amended Title 18, Chapter 84, Section 1752 of the U.S. Code. This 2012 version of an existing law says, It is unlawful if someone knowingly and with intent to impede or disrupt 
the orderly conduct of government business or official functions engages in disorderly or disruptive conduct in or within such proximity to any restricted building or grounds when or so that such conduct in fact impedes or disrupts the orderly conduct of government business or official functions. Now think about that. As such, if one protests loudly, say while an elected official accompanied by his secret service is speaking about any form of government business, including perhaps a proposed piece of legislation that you might oppose, you could be arrested, even if your speech is free of threats, vulgarities, and the like. To simply yell or chant may be determined to be an unlawful interruption. So the message is, well, take your protest somewhere else and not where the politician or his secret service are present. Now, quoting a University of Missouri-Kansas City Law article, quote, the first judicial suggestion that First Amendment protection should extend to subversive speech that falls short of inciting unlawful conduct can be traced to the 1917 case of Masses Publishing versus Patton. The decision was at the time a rare victory for the First Amendment in upholding the argument of Masses Publishing that the Postmaster General's refusal to allow the mailing of its revolutionary journal, attacking capitalism and the draft, violated the First Amendment. The court said that the government might prosecute words that are triggers to action, but not words that are keys of persuasion. Now, this incitement test did not become part of the Supreme Court's First Amendment jurisprudence until 1969 in the per curiam decision of Brandenburg versus Ohio in reversing the conviction of the Ku Klux Klan leader who gave a speech warning, quote, that there might have to be some revengeance taken for continued suppression of the white Caucasian race, the court held that the First Amendment allows punishment only of subversive advocacy calculated to produce, quote, imminent lawless action, close quote. So trespassing would appear to subjugate our free speech according to the new existing law because we simply make it illegal to protest anywhere near or where official business is being conducted, which would be, I guess, any time we have a politician accompanied by his Secret Service offering their protection and they are talking about anything government. Okay, I don't like that, but it's innocent compared to Senator Ed Markey, Democrat of Massachusetts, Hate Crime Reporting Act of 2014 introduced last week. This bill gives the authority to scour the Internet, radio and television content for offensive language. And it gives this authority to a government bureaucracy, the National Telecommunications and Information Administration. Now, a Boston Herald editorial labeled the bill, quote, frankly chilling proposition. Civil Liberties attorney Harvey Silvergate had this to say, This proposed legislation is worse than merely silly. It is dangerous. It's not up to Senator Markley, nor to the federal government, to define for a free people what speech is and is not acceptable.
There are many concerned with the proposed legislation and its potential implications. Writer Pamela Geller asserted that if this legislation is passed, it will introduce de facto Islamic blasphemy laws and will make criticizing Islam a hate crime. Well, that's not all that it has the potential of targeting. So my encouragement would be, you know, write your congressman, let him know this is a crazy bill. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? I think more and more I realize how free we are not. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is this is scary, but they do all of this stuff a little bit at a time. Um, you know, if you can't speak up against government, well, then how can you contribute to government? And soon government is just uh, an in-club, and if you're in there, well, then you can do something. And if you can't, you, you're out of luck, and you can't make any changes. And when you have that, well, the government gets b- bigger and bigger and more and more powerful, and... You know, we just become slaves to it, paying our taxes, doing as we are told, marching in order, and we're stuck. And that's not America. That's not where America started. That's not what it was all about. You know, the founding fathers would be turning in their graves. That Princeton article that we discussed a week ago that suggests we're already past the tipping point, the elite have control, we're really an oligarchy. Well, you know, I don't know that we are or we aren't. You know, that was a study, a report. fact of the matter is, if we all sit on our derrieres, we're soon to be. That's clear. Okay. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Professor Ronald Mallett, and we discussed his work and book on time travel. Janet wrote, wow, two hours with Professor Mallet went by so fast we must have been in a time machine. <laughs> I like that one. Andy wrote, I suspected that the show with Mallet would be a bit of a joke. I did not know that physicists are convinced that time travel is possible, just waiting on technology to develop, and I can't imagine why he has not obtained the funding. C.B. wrote, I think traveling to the past with the intention of correcting something is the perfect example of the phrase... The path to hell is paved with good intentions. Amen, CB. Phil wrote, thanks for your radio show. I learned something every time. Jill wrote, I attended your workshop at the Denver I Can Do It conference. Not only are you an excellent speaker, I learned so much in your session. Great stuff, very motivating, and very useful information. Well, thanks, Jill. Marianne wrote, I just started reading Mind Programming, and I follow your podcast. I love your work, Eldon. Where have you been all my life? Well, I've been right here, and I'm glad you found me, Marianne. Adela wrote, I am very happy with your products. Thank you. Danny wrote, man, I heard you on Coast to Coast. It touched my soul. Well, thank you, Danny. You know, if you missed the Coast Show, you can still listen by going to coasttocoastam.com. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. I truly appreciate your feedback and continued support. Now to this week's show. Where are we heading in consciousness evolution, and why is the time right now for a major shift? With the NASA scientist and author of Theory of Everything, Mr. Tom Campbell. Tom Campbell is a nuclear physicist who began researching altered states of consciousness with Bob Monroe at Monroe Laboratories in the early 1970s, 
where he and a few others were instrumental in getting Monroe's laboratory for the study of consciousness up and running. These early drug-free consciousness pioneers helped design experiments, develop the technology for creating specific altered states, and were the main subjects of study. Guinea pigs, if you will, all the time. Tom is the TC physicist, quote-unquote, described in Bob Monroe's second book, Far Journeys. Tom's research unites the worlds of objective and subjective experience under one scientific explanation, thus achieving the goal of generating one unified, comprehensive theory of everything that bridges metaphysics and physics with one scientific understanding. In February of 2003, Tom published the My Big Toe Trilogy, which represents the results and conclusions of his scientific exploration of the nature of existence. This overarching model of reality, mind, and consciousness explains the paranormal as well as the normal, places spirituality within a scientific context, solves a host of scientific paradoxes, and provides directions for those wishing to personally experience an expanded awareness of all that is. As a logic-based work of science, My Big Toe has no basis in belief, dogma, or any unusual assumptions. Praised as the holy grail of physics, Campbell's book, My Big Toe, asserts that consciousness trumps the material world, and once this is understood, everything else ranging from gravity to the paranormal is explained. This is a scientific pragmatism at its best. Now, Tom has been with us before, but it's been a very long time ago, and he has several notable new developments, as well as he's got a visit coming up to Spokane, my hometown, and a, and a special course that he is presenting. So let's get him in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Tom Campbell. Well, thank you, Elton. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here again. Well, good, sir. It's always my pleasure. You... Uh, you are one of those guests my lovely bride said. I said to her, you know, you may have to pick up the show because, uh, you know, I, uh, yeah, this cold has sometimes given me a bit of a coughing spell. And she's, oh, no, not today. Not not, not with not with Mr. Campbell. He's a NASA scientist. What, what would I say to him? And I told her, I said, you know, the beautiful thing about Tom is he really knows what he's talking about. So you can just ask him a question. He'll explain it in such an easy way that it'll just be natural for you. That, I think, is one of the hallmarks of your work, sir. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that's, that's really what I spend most of my uh, attention on, is it's, it's, to understand the theory, of course, was, was the first challenge, but a much bigger challenge was to explain it in such a way that other people could understand it. Amen. Well, now, Tom, we try to flesh out at least three components in every interview here. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? So let's begin with your story. I mean, how and when did you first become interested in the study of consciousness? Was that at the Monroe Institute and particularly the interface of consciousness with a manifest world, the, the world of physics, shoes and ships and sealing wax? Yeah, well, I think I first got interested in understanding consciousness and, and uh, what I would call the larger reality. When, uh, as a graduate student, uh, I was in graduate school in physics, uh, did my work in experimental nuclear physics, but anyway, I was a graduate student, and I, I saw a sign that was um, trying to elicit uh, people to come to a course on transcendental meditation, you know, and it had some nice words in there for me. It said, uh, less sleep, uh, 
you know, a clearer mind and things like that, and it was only $25, so I went, and I did practice Transcendental Meditation. And I found an amazing thing, Eldon, and that is that I could, I could uh, debug software that I was writing so much faster when I was in a meditation state than I could, and so much more accurately, actually, than I could if I were awake and sitting there pouring over the printouts. So that told me that, wow, there's something going on here that's not just, you know, the way I thought reality was. You know, I was a physicist, and like most scientists, my idea of reality is if you can't measure it, it either doesn't exist or it's not relevant. And (laughs) I realized after my experience with uh, Transcendental Meditation that that definition was, uh, you know, was very lacking. There's lots of things, or there's there's some major things that uh, were not measurable, and uh, they did have a very significant uh, uh, impact. So I think that was when I first got interested in consciousness. And then after I got out of graduate school, took a job, and uh, I and some other people where I worked uh, had an invitation to go see Bob Monroe. Now, Bob Monroe wrote Journeys Out of the Body. Um, this was early 70s, like 1972 or so. Bob book had probably been out for, I don't know, five, six, seven years anyway, and um, he lived not too far from where we worked, so we all went out to see Bob Monroe, and turned out that Bob was was at the point in his life where he didn't want to be just the, you know, the, the crazy guy that had these weird things happen to him. He wanted it to be explainable. He wanted science. He wanted to study it and find out more about it. He was convinced that it was real, but it needed some scientific uh, study. So he was building a lab for the study of consciousness and looking for people to man it, and a bunch of us were visiting him. We were all mostly scientists, engineers, and uh, I was just really uh, thrilled to get the opportunity to uh, work with Bob Monroe then for the next, um, well, for the next decade or more. You know, I was associated with Bob Monroe. So that's kind of how I got into this idea of, of consciousness and physics. And because I started with Bob Monroe soon after getting out of graduate school and starting with a career in physics, both my parallel careers in consciousness research and in physics uh, kind of started at the same time. So I have now about 40 years of experience in both. You, you know, I, I know you, Tom, and, and um, so I don't mean this to be in any shape way shape or form insulting but because of your work uh in consciousness because of the remote viewing etc there are those that argue your theories are subversive with regard to science and that they are based on speculation that you have gained as a result of you know these inner journeys that could for all intent and purposes just be you know confabulations to that you know, what do you say? What, you know, how do you answer that? Well, that's easy to answer. You know, uh, Copernicus's idea that the uh, Earth was not the center of the universe was subversive, and Galileo was obviously a subversive. He was put under house arrest for his subversiveness. And uh, even uh, Newton um, was a subversive. Certainly, relativity and quantum mechanics were both subversive, so... I feel right at home stepping into that uh, in, into that slot of a subversive in science. That's how science 
goes forward. That's how science uh, finds new ideas. They don't start at the center. They start out on the fringe. And eventually that fringe grows and grows, and pretty soon it gets more and more accepted. And, you know, sometime after that, it's like it's always been that way. You know, nobody uh, even thinks to question it. But then right. somebody somebody does question it, and, and we start that process over again. It starts on the fringe. So, yes, my science is kind of fringe, and it is... Uh, subversive in the sense that it is overturning um, the traditional view of reality and physics, but it's doing so in a way that it's solving physics problems. It's a better physics. And besides, when I first uh, published my books, myself and maybe one or two other people were the only ones I could find that were uh, proposing a virtual reality as a fundamental reality construct. That means that our reality is computed. It's information-based. And now, about a decade later, I'd say 25-30% of all the traditional physicists out there agree with me. So you yeah, see, I... we're, we're changing. We're, that's, that's changing. The fringe is now uh, kind of taking over the center. Right. And, and of course, you know, one of the problems with a paradigm is that if you, you become invested in it, academia is invested in it. If, uh, if you want tenor, you, you don't want to challenge it because if you do, you're likely, you know, to lose your job, not, not tenor. In fact, Ron Mallet last week said that he held back all of his research on, uh, Einstein's, uh, uh, theory of relativity until after he earned tenor, so then he could advance that this theory did indeed accommodate, you know, time travel. So, so the problem often comes down to, you know, there is an investment in protecting status quo, and it takes a special sort of courage to bounce against that, and you're bouncing against that. So uh, that's admirable, sir. Yeah, well, in, at this case, there, there's even more than that. We do have the investment, and uh, science doesn't like to change, just like any other group. You know, you have uh, your investment in what you're doing. You want that to, that to stay. But besides that, science has a, another issue with, let's say, virtual reality or with my work or with consciousness, and that is if you if you agree that reality is virtual, it's computed, then you have this question that comes up, which is, well, where's it computed? Where's the computer? Who's the programmer? You see? And right. that then gets them away from the idea that reality is, all, is only physical, that our universe is all the reality there is, you know, just the physical universe, and that's it. So they want that simple view of reality, and they feel like it's that view of reality that, that uh, it's physical and that's it, is what saved, you know, it's what created science in the first place and it's what saved all the rest of us from kind of the tyranny of belief. So we go back, you know, three or four hundred years, we go back in Copernicus and Galileo's time, and to be a heretic was dangerous. You know, you could, uh, you could lose your life for being a heretic. In other words, for not agreeing with the dominant authorities at the time. And science kind of overturned that. They didn't like this tyranny of, of belief. And uh, now they have, uh, you know, instituted kind of a tyranny of science, if you will, where the scientists have become the new high priests. But that's all right. You know, they're not going to burn anyone at the stake, and there is a process for uh, 
moving things from the fringe into the center, and all of that's working working well. But they kind of have this gut instinct that if you allow the idea that consciousness exists as an information field, if you, lie, if you allow the idea of a virtual reality, it's kind of going backwards to them at a time that um, ideas that were bigger than the physical yeah, begging a question of an unmoved mover. I don't want to cut you off, but we have a hard break coming up. When we come back, let's let's take that up. We're speaking with Mr. Tom Campbell about the theory of everything and consciousness evolution. You can learn more about Tom by visiting his website at My Big Toe. Now, this is my dash big dash toe.com. My dash big dash toe.com. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up after a few words from some of our friends. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Eldon's international best-selling book, Mind Programming, is a must-read if you wish to live awake in a world of sheeples. Film producer Jeff Warwick had this to say about mind programming. Dr. Eldon Taylor's new book is a must-read. If you've ever questioned your purpose in life or felt bound by a culture that's driven by mass media, you now have at your fingertips the knowledge and tools to break the chains of this cycle. Eldon goes in-depth to illustrate and expose how we've been programmed from birth by social constraints, and he methodically reveals the psychological techniques that advertisers, politicians, corporations, and the media use to control us. He then provides strategies and solutions to free your mind from these tactics and rise to a new level of consciousness. As you read this book, you'll feel the blinders being removed and will truly see the world in an entirely new light. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. celebrate another day of living too welcome back if you just joined us we're speaking with tom campbell about a theory of everything and consciousness evolution we ask our guests for up to three songs that really have meaning in their lives their life songs if you will this often provides some interesting insight to our guest now we just played some of i want to celebrate by rare a rare earth why is this song important to you tom and how does it tell us about who you are you know, I didn't. I never really thought about um, you know, my tastes in music and uh, how they uh, uh, kind of focused in on certain sorts of things and, and left other things out. That um, just nothing that I thought about until I 
you asked me to put together some songs that uh, were kind of in my favorite list, the ones that I that um, meant something uh, kind of special to me. And mm-hmm. as I did that, uh, I realized that when I listen to music, I really don't listen to words. Music to me is an emotional experience. It's an intuitive experience. And the words are just like another instrument. The voice is another instrument. And I don't really pay a whole lot of attention, now most of the time, some of the time it's not true, to uh, what's being said. But it's the, it's the music, it's the sound. Now, in this case, of course, what's being said is very positive. I want to celebrate, you know, uh, another day of living. And that is, uh, that I think is, a, is the way I feel generally about life. Life is wonderful, it's a joy, and every day is a celebration. So that kind of fits my, my, um, my attitude. And I like the music because it's up, it's energizing, it's, um, you know, kind of get up and move sort of music. And, uh, that uh, that suits me very well, and you'll see as we maybe listen to some of these others that uh, they tend to be more in the in the um, emotive style of of the of the hooks that they uh, you know that they snag you with. How they get your attention is more mm-hmm. in the emotive side than it is in the in the analyze the word side. Well, it's a wonderful sentiment. I want to celebrate. It is the way to begin your life. Uh, Every single day, in my view. So, all right, listen, before the break, uh, you were talking about uh, the computer. And, of course, that presupposes a programmer. And, uh, and you know, that, that brings to my mind some of the initial arguments of Aristotle about the unmoved mover. You know, we move into physics and, and, we, and all the conversations that compare singularity to in the beginning there was only and... And uh, somehow it divided itself and created everything. So, you know, I guess the bottom line is, does your argument, uh, does your perception, the theory of everything, does it imply uh, necessarily a creator? Well, it depends on how we interpret the word creator. I could say both yes and no to that, depending on how people, you know, uh, want to think about it. It Uh does indeed uh, necessarily, uh, logically lead to the idea that our reality, our universe, is a creation, and indeed it was created. So in that sense, you know, it's it's created by something else. In other words, a virtual reality cannot create itself. Stimulation cannot create itself. It has to be created as Dr. Fredkin said, in other, you know, somewhere else, outside of itself. Right. So, yes, in, in that sense, um, the answer to that is, is yes. There is a, another larger system, which is the parent, if you will, uh, or the creator of us. On the other hand, that is not to, um, you know, this creator, if we start thinking that of the little old man and his long white beard <laughs> playing with these pet people, you know, that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a natural, evolving system that's still evolving. It's imperfect. It's finite. And um, it doesn't really care so much what you believe or profess to. You know, it, it's not dogmatic. And um, so the other kind of sense of the interpretation we have with the word creator, uh, it doesn't really fit that. This is a natural system. You know, this is science. That's kind of the point I was that I was 
leading to uh, before we had the break, and that is scientists have to realize that opening up to other and opening up to um, the subjective does not mean going backward to belief tyranny. It's going forward to seeing the subjective and consciousness as science. It's just a bigger picture of science. So that's, you know, so it's a step forward there. So, and the, these two conversations kind of um, uh, support each other. So yes and yes and no. There is something else that's larger than us, that's larger than our universe. But no, uh, it's not, um, you know, personal in the way that we that we generally think of it when we think of the Creator. And in okay, other ways, this, it, is, it is personal. This something else is this a first cause, or do we have an infinite regression? We have, you know, a causal before that cause. No, it uh, well, logically it goes like this. You can have you can have regressions, just like we may one day have the know-how to create a simulation in which there are conscious players. Okay, now then we would be kind of the cause. We'd be the other, the larger system to that consciousness computer system that we created. So you can back that up then and say, yeah, that, that can back up. But eventually, of course, you always have to end up at the same place, and that is the beginning. And the beginning, I posit, as consciousness. That's one of my initial assumptions. Consciousness exists, but it doesn't exist like we think of it now. It's just a potential. And that potential has the ability to... Uh, you might say, be aware of itself, self-change, that it understands that it could maybe be in a state this and a state that, two different states of its being, which could be anything. Well, that turns out to be a one and a zero, a this and a that. And if you have a this and a that, and then then more this and that, you get ones and zeros, you have information. And an information system evolves by lowering its entropy. That means uh, creating structure, not creating randomness. So that's how I start with this somewhere back in this regression, and who knows how far the regression might go. It may not be any. It may just be this one system, this one larger conscious system. It may have been the one that started and evolved to what we call consciousness. But eventually, that's where you get. And, well, where did that potential come from? We just don't know. And that's not a failure of the, of the uh, theory to not know that, some knowledge is just impossible for us. We are consciousness, so we cannot get outside of consciousness to look at consciousness from an objective viewpoint and see where it came from. You see, we're inside that system, so we're limited. Yeah. We have to realize that the fact that we can't come up with a, um, should we say, uh, kind of a, a uh, an answer for exactly how did that start, is not a failure, it's just the way it is. We can't get that information. The child doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't have first-hand information about the birth of its parents. Okay, now I, I want to make sure that I have this, and I mean, I, I probably should have started by just, you know, asking you to summarize your theory of everything, but we begin, if I understand correctly then, um, viewing everything as basically a simulation driven by consciousness, uh, an information system 
that, according to your analogy, would have been created at some point that we're participating in. We didn't create it, we're participating in it. That seeks lower entropy. Now, have I got that pretty well, or, or go ahead and flesh out the rest of your toe? Okay, yeah, that's, that's a good uh, description. But, okay, we have, we, let's just start where, where we left off there with uh, consciousness. So consciousness started to evolve. It was a very primitive system. It really wasn't a thinking, wasn't a particularly intelligent system uh, at the time, but it evolved as a digital information system. Okay, so it lowered it in, lowers its entropy. So lowering entropy is its purpose. What it does, because if its entropy goes up, that means it loses structure, becomes random, and then it's nothing. If it's just randomness, it doesn't really exist anymore. That's kind of death to an information system. There is no information. It's all randomness. So the system evolves, and eventually, like all things that evolve, it goes through these series of, of steps where it finds out that it can lower its entropy even more if it cooperates, if it, it interacts with something else. Just one thing by itself is very limited. So it it breaks itself into pieces. Now we can think biologically like the single cell, you know, then turned into multi-celled things. Cooperating cells interacting with each other made something more survivable, you know, something, uh, uh, high, something lower entropy that could uh, survive better. So this consciousness system does the same. It breaks itself into pieces, or you can you can say that it uh, cuts off subsets of itself so that it can interact, because the interaction of these pieces now gives more uh, novelty, more uh, degrees of freedom of things that can happen. Therefore, uh, there's more potential for structure. And that happens, and the whole system, of course, is trying to lower its entropy. Well, these pieces of consciousness, what is it? This is a communication field, right? So these chunks are just communicating with each other. Imagine that. That's like uh, maybe 10,000 people in a big chat room, and they're all communicating with each other. And there's really no rules or no etiquette. It's just communication. Well, there's not much traction there. How do you change? How do you grow? How do you find states of lower entropy? Um, they needed something that gave a little more feedback as to um, you know, actions and reactions of these conversations. And, of course, that led to the creation of virtual reality. Now, our virtual reality wasn't programmed. It's not that there's a programmer that programmed this reality and every little blade of grass is, you know, in the program someplace. Our virtual reality evolved, just like the larger conscious system evolved. So you start with uh, initial conditions of, say, uh, you know, a, a lot of energy in a tight little spot, high heat, pressure, and in that one little spot, you have a rule set of how things can interact, how energy can exchange, and then you push the run button, and the gases expand, they cool, they coalesce, they form suns, and you end up with our virtual reality, our universe. So it's an evolving um, simulation, you see, and that's there so that consciousness can evolve itself in this with this simulation. Consciousness can play the parts of these characters, interact in ways that have feedback and help them evolve. Now, there's one more step we have to, to go to make this make sense, and that is okay. that, am I running to a stop? No, 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 that was okay. Yeah, what's the next okay. step, please? Okay, one more step that we have to take is 
what is this, let's look at this purpose to lower our entropy. If you have a lot of interacting chunks of consciousness, things that, that communicate with each other, you have a social system. Okay? In a social system, how do we lower entropy? What, is it, you know, what does that mean, a lower entropy in a social system? Well, there's two opposites here that uh, we can talk about. One is love, cooperation, caring about other. It's about other, not about self. The other is fear. Fear is basically self-centered. It's about me. I need to make sure I get what I need and I can keep it. Um, so if you have a social system and one, let's say you have 10,000 people and they will be the love group and they will interact with each other with the same resources, uh, uh, finite resources for a finite time, and they will do it with caring, caring about other. It will be a love-based system. Then think of another same number of people, actually duplicate people, but now that's fear-based. It's all based on what about me? What can I get and how can I get mine? Well, give that thing, give those two experiments, say, 20 years to work out, and what will you have at the end? Well, in the love-based system, they will have pretty well optimized uh, the resources they have, including the people and whatever other resources they have, because if somebody comes up with a better idea, they share it. On the fear side, if somebody comes up with a better idea, they keep it to themselves so that they can use it for their own gain. You see, if somebody on the fear side right. does something, accumulates or gets something or gets an idea, everybody else wants to take it away from them, use it, steal it, um, whatever. In the fear side, because it's now very contentious, people tend to wad up into groups that are for self-protection, and then these groups fight with each other. We call that wars. You see, so what do we look like here on our planet? Uh, we kind of look like the fear group. You know, we've kind of moved in, in that way. But we, we're, where we need to go is like the love group. So we get to the point that now these individuated units of consciousness need to lower their entropy. And how do they do that? They do that through interacting in a virtual reality. They make choices, free will choices, and these choices either move them closer to a love-based you know, choice, to a love-based interaction, or to a fear-based interaction. If it's a love-based interaction, then they're moving toward lower entropy. So that's how individual pieces of this consciousness system evolve. They evolve to become love. And love then becomes the fundamental purpose of the system, which becoming love is lowering entropy, which is what the, what the system does. So that's all right, the connections, okay. and that's why we end up with a virtual reality. That's why we play in the virtual reality, and we have feedback here so that we can, we can make better choices. We get the results of our choices. If we choose the fear path, we end up with very unpleasant lives. If we choose the love path, our lives are very rich. So that's the kind of feedback that a good school needs to have. Okay, now, Tom, I have to ask you, I mean, you know, a side of all of this is very metaphysical, and, I mean, you do provide answers on a number of things. Indeed, you know, during the break, uh, you're providing an answer with regard to what happens when we die. So we are, if I may, we are, you know, simulations in a simulator that have become conscious of ourselves. Have I got that right? Um. Sort of. We, okay. 
depends on what you what you call we. If we are the body, our yeah, well, body now, is simulated, but we as consciousness are part of the original larger consciousness system. Okay, so then the consciousness of each of us as individuated consciousness, aware of mm-hmm. ourself, that consciousness uh, survives the death of the physical body to come back and play in the simulation again? Absolutely. Absolutely. Consciousness is not derived from the physical. You know, uh, it's not that the physical brain creates a consciousness, and then when the brain dies, consciousness goes away. Consciousness is a piece of this larger consciousness system, and it's this larger system that's created this virtual reality as a subset in which the pieces of consciousness can interact with each other. Think of it in the same way as we think of, of The Sims or some virtual reality uh, game that, that, okay. that you know of that's popular, probably that your children play. It works the same way. Those games have a rule set. They have characters which we call avatars. Those characters have to abide by the rule set. And the consciousness of those characters is you, the player. You, who sit there with the mouse and the keyboard, are the consciousness. The character doesn't do anything unless you, your intent, causes them to do it. So this is the same way. We are chunks of this larger consciousness system. The virtual reality basically uh, computes the constraints with the, it's the rule set. It, it, you know, I said with the big, you know, the big digital bang and had a rule set and right. creates this virtual reality. The virtual reality is a is the result of that rule set and its evolution. So that's the constraints on what we can do and what we can't do. And we, as a chunk of consciousness, are like the are like the uh, player with the screen and the and the mouse. We just have an avatar, and we're playing that avatar in this game. So. The consciousness is not the person, it's not the body, uh, two different things. It's just like you when you're playing The Sims, you know, you, the consciousness, are different than The Sims character that you're playing. Right. Okay, now, and, and of course, I'm going the same place, and I'm sure a lot of scientists go when they listen to uh, you unpack your theory, and that's, this sounds, you know, very much like uh, Eastern religions and uh you know, we have uh, uh, nirvana, which is, you know, merging our individual consciousness with the one, the total consciousness. We, you know, we have the illusion, maya. Uh, we, of course, have reincarnation with dharma and karma. Uh, as your explanation was just given, does it not fit that system or... Am I missing something? No, that was that was one of the one of the major surprises to me, and that is as I studied consciousness, and and I'm doing this now, uh, not from a philosophical viewpoint, but from a scientific viewpoint. Once yeah. after a few uh, years with Bob Monroe, I had full access to the larger consciousness system. I could move around in this system. I could do research there. And from that research in the larger consciousness system, I was coming up with a sense of how do things work? What are the limitations? Uh, uh, what can you do? What can't you do? And why does it work that way? Because that's what physicists do. They, try, they ask those kinds of questions. And the big surprise was that as I learned about consciousness, I started seeing these parallels 
to um, religion and philosophy. And it's not just Eastern, though Eastern um, probably fits it very closely. Uh, but, you know, take a, you know, the Christian term, God is love, right? Well, mm. see, it fits in perfectly, right? Um, but yes, it did fit. And that kind of was, gave me a kind of a deep chuckle, if you will, that here I am the scientist. I'm working this science from uh, uh, doing good research. And what do I end up with? I end up with something that explains in a lot more detail, gives logical reason behind, you know, what you find in many mystical, I guess we'll say that, Eastern philosophies, mostly mystical um, uh, religions or, right. or philosophies. That Yes, indeed, uh, the Buddha says we're all one. Well, that's true. We're all pieces of the system. We're all connected. We all, uh, as consciousness, we all communicate with each other. And, uh, you know, that the physical world is, is illusion, maya. So it did. It fit very, very well. And then I realized that a lot of these traditions that we had, the Eastern religious traditions, Eastern philosophy, and indeed, the, you know, some of the Western agnostics and, and uh, some of the Western philosophic and religious traditions, actually had a pretty strong thread of truth in them. Now they had a lot of nonsense in them, too. There's a lot of dogma and a lot of things that, uh, you know, my research doesn't support, but some of the fundamental concepts were there. So I kind of, before, as a scientist, I gave those sorts of things very low probability of having any significance, and then I find out that uh, actually they had a lot <laughs> they had understood a whole lot at the level of poetry, at the level of intuition, not at the level of science, but it, it fits. I've heard that said many times by scientists who, um, in their work, find themselves looking at material the Vedas uh, had to say many, many years ago. Listen, we have a heartbreak coming up. You're a physicist. When we come back, I'm going to ask you, I mean, theoretically, you've got some empirical proof for this. You've created some mathematics. Uh, you know, you have a way of demonstrating. Uh, and, I, and I'm going to ask you all about that when we come back. Again, if you would like to know more about Tom Campbell and his work, do visit his site or check out the links on ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. All right, we have a film featuring our guest answering the question, What Happens When You Die? You can watch it during our break in our chat room. So if you're not already there, now's the time to get there. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat and choose the chat room button near the top of the page. We'll be right back after this station break. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Tom Campbell about a theory of everything, together with consciousness evolving, or the evolution of consciousness. But before we get back to the show, I want to invite you to join me on Facebook. I post regularly everything from where I am and what's on next to the latest in science, technology, and consciousness studies. And from time to time, some of my own opinions about the world we live in. And... I love your comments and feedback, and Facebook is a great place for that. So please give me a like and join me at facebook.com forward slash Dr. Eldon Taylor. That's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, we just played some of your second musical choice, Tom, Compared to What by Les McCann. And i got to tell you, you know, I can hang out with you anytime. I mean, I, I love your music choices. So what's the story on this one? Well, this is one where actually the words do add some to it, but the music itself, again, is very up. It's very positive. Um, you know, it's it's in that same genre as uh, I just want to celebrate another day of living. Uh, it's hard to listen to that and not uh, feel happy, not feel positive. Um, at least that's the way it affects me. Okay, so well. it's, uh, it, it just, you know, jazz, um, what's called fusion, which is a mixture of jazz and rock. Uh, are kind of my favorite spots. Blues, also. Uh, emotional music, a mu- music that uh, makes you feel more than makes you think. Well, uh, you know, uh, to me, that makes me feel. I mean, it brings uh, visions of, forgive me, but, oh, a pool table, a life table, and a glass of wine, and you know, camaraderie, and a good jazz band, and a wonderful evening spent, maybe even listening to some poetry recitals, you know, uh, like we used to have in the old days at university <laughs> coffee shops. Yeah, well, it, yeah. Just, it just sounds fun, doesn't it? It does, it does, it does. Okay, before the break, I, you know, told you, you know, physics is all about math, Um Tell us about the mathematics to your uh, your big toe. Well, big toe it comes it comes actually in in two ways that you can look at it. Uh, one, you can look at it as a logical you know mathematics is logic, right? But you can look mm-hmm. at it as a as a logical flow, which would be like say uh, Darwin's theory of evolution. Darwin's theory of evolution didn't have a lot of math per se in it, but it was a, a logical flow. And um, things had to had to uh, make sense logically. Now, mine does that, but also it does have math to it. I have had several uh, people. Uh, one of them would be um, um, Brian. Oh, what's Brian's last name? Brian with with um, Weiss. No, no. Uh, anyway, I'll catch it. Okay. Just, All right. He, uh, you know. He has uh, created a mathematical uh, process that generates physics here in this uh, virtual reality. So he starts with just a couple of very simple assumptions, and he is a, uh, a computer scientist. He also has degrees in mathematics and actually some degrees in psychology. And he's in New Zealand. Whitworth, Brian Whitworth, that's okay. the name I was thinking of. So Brian okay. has has this uh, this theory, and we've been kind of talking about it back and forth now for probably five or six years, and, and uh, when he first put that out, I, I looked at it and said, oh, that's just terrific. That derives the rule set that I'm talking about for 
out of this physical reality, you know, virtual reality. So we've been talking, and, and what he has done is from these very simple computer science um, processes, he's derived all the physics. So he derives things like mass and light and force, and, you know, he's in the process now of, do, of adding uh, gravity uh, to that, and he's done the particle model, so he, he has derived, say, the whole, uh, what, the, what do we call it, it's a standard model in physics, which is particle physics, it's the, the basic particles, you know, their spin, their mass, their charge, this sort of thing. Right. And he can, he can uh, define that whole table, and he can tell you why the uh, quark has a charge of, you know, in thirds. You know, you get a one-third, two-thirds charge uh, in quarks. And physicists now would say they have no idea. You know, their, their theory says that that's the way it needs to be in order to make the equations work, but they don't really know why that ought to be that way, and they don't really know why there ought to be just these certain sets of particles. You know, they, they map out particles like... Uh, the chemist mapped out the periodic table. So they can mm -hmm. look at these particles and say, oh, here's a hole, you know, there's one missing here, and then they go look for that particle. So it's very much like uh, with chemistry uh, 100 years ago when you had a periodic table and then there would be an element missing and they'd go look for that element. And he derives that whole table, finds the holes, and um, anyway, so that's all from computer science uh, math, derives our, our rule set. And okay, then on I, the I other... Have... Well, go ahead, please. Okay, on the other end, see, that's the back end. That's the, right. the rule set for the virtual reality. Now, on the front end is how is it that consciousness was able to evolve into this uh, probabilistic system that it is, and I have math on that end as well, which shows that you have some very fundamental mathematical concepts that are really very simple, that if you apply them and then reapply them like fractally to themselves, you end up with hey, something very much like the larger consciousness system that uh, tells you that it has to be probability-based and it uh, works uh, fundamentally very much like quantum mechanics works. So, yes, from both ends of it, we do have math that uh, explains how it is like that, but the whole thing itself is a, is a logical sequence with two, two assumptions, and that is that consciousness exists, and that evolution exists. So those okay, I have to, I have to ask you this. I mean, last week we had Ron Maladon, and he distinguished between Einstein's general theory and special theory of, of relativity, and his his work with time travel. Within the simulation, is it possible that we can, you know, time travel? Well, again. Well, I have to say yes and no, depends on what you think about time travel. Yes, if you want to go and interact with, let's say, the past, you can go interact with it, so you can go and, and maybe change something and see how that makes changes, but those changes don't reflect back to the present. That's kind of Hollywood. It doesn't work that way. Uh, it's really a database that you're in. You're querying a database. So you can go visit the past because there is all that data has been kept. And it's just like being there. It's a probabilistic database of everything that, that, uh, you know, that happened and, of course, everything that could have happened but didn't and the probability that it might have happened. So you, 
can work in that database, and that's sort of a time travel, but it's not in the Hollywood sense of time travel. Gotcha. And no. so you don't make changes that then reflect back to the present. And there's also a probable future databases, which are necessary and are part of the, the mechanics of making a virtual reality. And yes, you can go into that future uh, probabilistic reality, but it's not deterministic. It's not that this has to happen. It's just that that's what's probable. And you can look at the uh, things that are most probable or things that are second or third most probable or whatever. And those probabilities So now this is where you get the many universes argument. Is that right? Well, no, it's not the same as, as many universes. It's not the, it's not that, um, you know, that's a, that's a, a different model, but it says but, that every time something changes, there's multiple universes. This doesn't say, this says there's a, there's a big library. There's a big database, and that database does probabilistic projections into the future, which well, will change, may change, but uh, certainly can be changed, and also keeps track of all the possibilities in the past. And it just exists. But they're not universes that are all chugging along um, with characters that are alive and with free will. You know, they're not all operating. Gotcha. It's just data. Right, and, and until and unless you were to travel back and then actually begin one because you chose an alternative in your simulation, then you right. would trigger off a parallel. Is that Correct. No, you go. No, you go back, and, you, and uh, now that's possible that that could be done. But basically, you go back to a certain point in time. You introduce a new variable. You do something right. different, and right. what you get then is information about what the probability is. You know, the probability of that having various effects. And for you, it's like being in the movie. You're there. You can see how. You say this to that person, in which that person then does something, which does something. You can follow that along, and it's just an exercise of you in a database. It okay, doesn't change like... anything. It doesn't start another world. It's just you gathering information in a database. I have to ask you this. Now, there are, especially in the East, there are regression theories that, um, you know, we can reincarnate. And maybe, you know, we're living right now in the 21st century, but I want to come back as a cowboy in, in you know, circa 1800. Um, is that possible? And, and, and if so, how does that, how does the reincarnation cycle differ from a time-traveling cycle? Okay, well, that is not possible in my theory. You don't do that. You can't go back and reincarnate into, say, the 1800s. Okay. The 1800s are history. They're done. Okay. okay, and you you don't uh, you can't do that, so that's that's kind of different. Now reincarnation is a is necessary. It's a logical necessity of the of the uh, of the theory, in that your point here is to grow up, to uh, move from fear to toward love, and that's a very difficult thing to do. You don't do you don't take great giant leaps. Most of us don't anyway. We take very small steps. So it's an iterative process. It's a growing up, a learning process, and all learning processes need to be iterative. A learning process that says, okay, you got one look. I'm going to give you the book, open it up, take a look, and that's it. That's all you got. You know, well, that doesn't work well for learning. Learning has to be iterative, and this is a growing learning process, so it needs to be iterative because once you learn something, that enables you to learn something else. And then after you've learned that, that enables you to learn the next big thing. 
So that's why we have to have reincarnation. But it's not uh, that all time, all times are not um, kind of existing at the same time. That doesn't really make sense in my theory. All right, you have, cool. uh, How about NDEs, Tom? I mean, you know, we, we've had a lot of guests on here. Some of them uh, argue that it's just a brain uh, process is is chemical. Some of them have come on and, and argued for it, but made preposterous statements that that really tend to, you know, well, I, I they, they just tend to discredit uh, what they say. And yet, others have come on and they've given some really credible evidence for near death. Is an NDE, I mean, one of the common things about an NDE is, you know, they have the white light, they see their relatives, da-da-da-da-da-da. Is that a natural process of the simulation, or is that the byproduct of brain chemistry as the body is dying? That's a natural product of consciousness. That's the way consciousness works. Now, that doesn't have anything to do with the brain. Actually, the brain, of course, just like the virtual body, it's a virtual brain. And the virtual brain doesn't really compute anything, doesn't store anything, doesn't remember anything. That's not what the brain does. It's a virtual brain. Sounds like my brain, all right. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, yes, many of those experiences, probably most of those experiences are what I would say. They're real. They're real experiences. On the other hand, the reason why they differ so much is that it's very much like if you take a a five-year-old to Disneyland, okay, and they experience Disneyland, and they come back, and you ask them, well, you know, what was it like? And they say, oh, I saw Mickey Mouse. You know, he was big, and I got his autograph, and I saw this and that, and I visited the princesses and the heroes and whatever. Well, that's a five-year-old's viewpoint. We know that there was a guy who paid probably minimum wage to get in a Mickey Mouse suit and walk around and uh, interact with children. Right? But the child doesn't know that. What they know is that they met Mickey Mouse. So we have people who are in various states of growth, understanding, sophistication, whatever you want to say, and they're having these experiences. And what they come back is they, they tell you pretty honestly what they experienced. So some of them will say, I saw a guy in a big Mickey Mouse suit who was uh, pretending to be a character. And others will say, I saw a Mickey Mouse. You see? So it's that kind of thing. That's why we get a lot of variation, because there's a lot of interpretation that's individual, but there's some components of it that are kind of typical, like you move through the tunnel and toward the light. You get to light, and there's all this white light, and then there's feelings of love and caring, and everything's going to be all right, and the relatives come out. And all of that is, is you know, happens with a lot of, in, of these near-death experiences. And that's because it's a natural process of consciousness that's taking place there. And it turns out that their bodies don't die, and they come back, and they've just experienced a little bit of that uh, transitioning process. Now, why do they go through tunnels of light? Because they have a belief that you can't go someplace if you don't move. That's just a belief that comes from this physical reality. That's not true in the larger consciousness system, but... It's a belief, so they have to have some sense of moving, and the way you have sense of moving if you change relative to your, you know, your background, your environment. Right. So they imagine right. a tunnel, and they have to move through the tunnel, and then they see the white light, and they see relatives because that's kind of an expectation of theirs. So we get those images because that's our culture. 
if you had a different culture, maybe a indigenous um, people someplace who were more into animal spirits and that sort of thing, you'd be met by the you know by the ba- the great bear or some other sort of thing. Gotcha. So our, those those uh, experiences we have are very varied by interpretation and they're very culturally biased. Okay, L- let me ask you this then. Now, in the simulation, you made it clear that consciousness is not a function of the brain. Right. And yet, mm, neurochemistry directly affects mood states, um, even the sense of connectedness or spirituality uh, with people. And new research with fMRI shows us that a MRI technician watching you make a decision will know what you're going to decide six to ten seconds before you know what you are deciding, what your choice is. So now you said two things that I want to address here. The first one is, if consciousness has nothing to do with the brain, then how is it that the brain is acting on consciousness in mood states, etc., through neurochemistry? And the second one is, if we have free will, how is it that a MRI technician can view the brain and know what we're going to do before we know? Okay, that, there's, that, those are both good questions, and the answer to those are that the, the physical brain okay, is a virtual brain, just information. That's not where the action is. The action is inside consciousness. Consciousness does not live in your head. It doesn't live in your brain. You, it's like you're the player with the, with the uh, computer and the uh, mouse. Okay? You're, the, you're the player, and there's a virtual reality that works on a rule set. Now, the rule set includes chemistry, includes biochemistry, includes scanners. It includes all of that. The rule set is what has, is the basis for our virtual reality. All the energy interactions is defined by that rule set. So if someone um, hits you on the head with a, with a metal pipe, hit your avatar on the head with a metal pipe, then you, as a consciousness, have new constraints. See, now maybe you can't speak, or your character limp, gotcha. or something else, because mm-hmm. that's the result of the rule set. The rule set says the brain gets bent, then it can't function because the, the part that worked, uh, the arms or maybe the legs or something, is the part that got damaged. So it just creates rules, um, constraints. That's what... That's what the physical brain is doing, all right? Now, the thing about you can measure something before it happens, this is a confusion between what I call little C consciousness and big C consciousness. Little C consciousness is what you are aware of. It's like your local awareness, your sense data, your local awareness. But there's a, you are more than that. So you're connected to this larger consciousness system. You're an individuated unit of consciousness, and there's a piece of there's a piece of your consciousness that's playing this game. Okay, so you are a, a bigger thing, and we have, you know, we had the uh, what was that experiment? Um, oh, uh, who was the guy? He, he experimented with uh, the, a similar kind of thing where you have a response actually starts before the um, Benjamin Libet. Yeah, Libet. That's that's the guy. Yeah. Uh, had a similar sort of thing. Well, the reason that that happens is that the physical system.
calculated system is a very slow system. Okay, it's it's levers and and you know joints and tendons and muscles and all of that. In order for that system to function smoothly, you have to speed up the process of getting it to act because the information system is very very fast relative to that. So if you had a a stimulus and then waited a long time for the response, what do we call that in a computer game? We call that video lag. Right. And it's very annoying when you're playing a game and you have video lag. You want things to happen kind of instantaneously, so it's more natural that way. Well, we have that same problem in this virtual reality. So we start the process of that body moving before you actually get the, get the stimulus. So that by the time the stimulus occurs, you've got a body that's, that's geared up, at least, to react. Now, those, those starting potentials that Libet found are very, very small. They're tiny things. You have to have very um, sensitive measuring equipment to see them. It's not like that. the arm actually starts to move, but the process for that arm moving begins. You right. know, the biochemical process starts. That's what, they're, that's what they're looking at. And in the brain, processes start before you actually have to act. That's a, that's a feature of the virtual reality to try to eliminate video lag. You know, Tom, the cortical evoked potential, or P300 wave, that uh, Libet looked at, uh, essentially gave us milliseconds of time differential between activity uh, that was the precursor to a conscious choice or a conscious movement. Mm-hmm. But fMRI shows us that there's a greater distance, you know, like I say, 6 to 10 seconds. But if I understand you right, that when that MRI technician is looking, watching your brain, he's actually mm-hmm. watching your big C consciousness, not your little C consciousness. He's not watching the avatar. He's watching the behind the scene, the big C consciousness, which gives rise, I think, to an illusory sense of free will. I'm going to ask you all about that when we come back, but we have a break coming up. So we hope you're enjoying our show today. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes and take your phone calls. If you have a question for Mr. Campbell, do call in. You can do that by dialing one eight seven seven two three zero three zero six two. If you're calling from abroad, be sure and use your uh, country code first. Stay tuned. We have saved the best for last. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Whether you catch our show on CTR or 12radio.com or bto.net and or bbs.com, we want you to know that we appreciate you. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. And when she's gone it's not warm when she's away Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And she's always gone too long Anytime she goes away Wonder this time where she's gone Wonder if she's gonna stay 
no sunshine when she's gone And this house just ain't no home Anytime she goes away And I know, I know You know, that's kind of how I feel when you're gone, Princess. Ain't no sunshine. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Tom Campbell about a theory of everything and consciousness evolution. Again, we'll take your calls in this half hour, so if you have a question of our guest, either give us a call or submit your question in our chat room. Ravinder and her team are there to put your questions forward. Okay, Tom, we just played one of my very favorites, Ain't No Sunshine by Bill Withers. Why is this music important to you, sir? Oh, it's it's what I would call emotionally authentic. It's real. In that voice, you can hear the pain. And uh, I I relate to the blues. Uh, I like uh, I like a lot of the blues artists, and and uh, I think that's the reason why it's very genuine, heartfelt, uh, honest music. With words, you know, words come from the intellect, and the intellect uh, can be honest or dishonest. But the emotions in that song are obviously real, and the feeling is, is palpable. So that's why I like it. I think it's just a very genuine uh, expression of the human condition. Great music, great music for sure. All right, sir, before the break, I suggested to you that our avatar only thinks he knows what's going on, he, she, that indeed the big C consciousness is dictating what's happening, and that's what MRI folks are saying. And so our avatar, the little C, is uh, operating under an illusion of free will. Did I miss something? Is that right, wrong, or are we, you know, unpack it? Uh, well, it was basically right, but the uh, the uh, conclusion at the end is that the uh, you know we don't have a, a consciousness. It's not like the avatar is conscious, and then there's the big C consciousness. We have really one consciousness. That's our big C consciousness. But there's a piece of that. There's this one little piece that's just um, observing, if you will, the sense data of the individual. And it's it's there what we call consciousness. You know, we as as physical beings, you know, here we are walking around in this universe, and we're aware of things, and we call that our consciousness. In fact, our consciousness is a much bigger thing. Okay, so the consciousness that's the much bigger thing has free will, and we'll get into that, I guess, a little later on. But what we're what we're seeing now is that scientists, and I think Dean Radin did some experiments like this, where he had pictures would come up, and they would come up randomly out of a big set of pictures. And the pictures would be maybe um, had a lot of emotional content, something horrible or something lovely or something like that. And he could measure, he said, up to six seconds ahead of time of what picture, what kind of picture was coming up. Yeah. Because if it was a picture that was something really horrible, people would start to have a reaction that showed, you know, horrible, um, six seconds before 
or the random number generator even picked the picture. Right. The so, physiology was somehow aware. But then doesn't that uh, further affirm the notion that, you know, um, there is a level of consciousness that our local consciousness, and I'm just going to think of it like that, our local consciousness is not aware of. There is a level of consciousness w- with each and every one of us that our local consciousness is not aware of. Um and therefore, our local consciousness, it would seem to me, is operating as though it knows what's really going on. Um, and, I, and here I'm just, you know, I'm also drawing on the research that we know about the brain and, and about psychology. You know, we, we know that a person's conscious mind may not be aware of decisions that are being made for a variety of reasons in the subconscious, but they will nevertheless confabulate reasons for why they chose what they did. Not that the confabulation is a lie, because they sincerely believe it, but they're indeed just making this up. Split-brain studies, for example, have been have clearly demonstrated that. So um, my question, I guess, is within the simulation, do we have, like, the local consciousness, the consciousness of the avatar, and then the larger consciousness, uh, you know, an oversoul or whatever, however you want to see that, and uh, it it really is impinging upon the local consciousness by way of not just detecting information, as Raiden's research shows, but indeed in predisposing our responses. Now, you know, the wording here bothers me a little bit. I, I don't want Clean to... Clean it up uh, for me, boss. Yeah, okay. Let me let me try to do that. Yes, the, the first case is, is you're right. We're measuring uh, tiny effects that get started in the body. And even in Raiden's case, for six seconds, because the, because the uh, physiology of anger or the physiology of disgust or whatever it is that this picture brings up, because that is so slow... Okay, that takes a long time for this gland to secrete and the blood system to take that through the veins and it gets to the cells, which energizes this and that. So we've got this long biochemical and mechanical process going on before the person, you know, eyes bug open and their mouth opens and they see something horrible that they respond to. There's a lot of process before you actually get that physical reaction. So that's what they're measuring. They're measuring this. This long process gets started so that that the person actually responds to the stimuli and doesn't just sit there with a blank look on their face for six seconds after the picture shows and then reacts. You see, so that's what's going on because it's a virtual reality. It's just like when we click on the the mouse, we want our virtual Sims character to, to move his hand, and we click on the mouse. Well. That signal has to go through our ISP. It goes across maybe maybe halfway around the world. It has to get into a server, then it has to get into the right place, then the character, and then it actually has to move pixels on a screen. And all that takes time. And if you were measuring back in the place where that signal was going around the world, you could say, "Aha! You see, we've got we've got a signal here that says that guy's going to move his hand, but he's just sitting there like a dope."
the time. Now, what about the fact that uh, in Radin's experiments, it was a random generator that showed the picture? How does the system know? Well, the system knows that. This is a virtual reality. It knows what picture is going to come up next. It knows how that random generators work. They're not really random. They are uh, they're from seeds, and they're calculated. But So the, the system knows all that. Now, that further, you, though, if, excuse if me, but doesn't that... Doesn't that further compound the issue of free will? I mean, if the system is known by a random number generator, then, you know, there's a certain determinism to everything. So It just just seems like there's determinism. It would seem that way as we look to it, but you see, it's not determinism. When you click that mouse, you know, that doesn't say that that character on The Sims has to be deterministic because... You know, it doesn't know what's going on, and the thing's already started. That character on the screen is, is not deterministic. It depends on what you choose to do with it when you click your mouse. You see, so it's the same sort of thing. If we look at consciousness, then we say, no, consciousness, big C, consciousness has free will. The character in the virtual reality is slow. The character in the virtual reality doesn't move Right when you think so, that's different. That's not gotcha. conscious. That's a that's a character in a simulation. That's an avatar. That's not anything that's alive or anything else. It's just numbers in a computer, and it takes a while before the numbers in the computer get changed because you know that just takes a while. And in our system, we have these avatars with these biological systems that are really really slow with squirting, you know, hormones and biochemicals that have to move through the blood system and get into the cells, that takes a long, long time. So that's, the, that's this time variation. It's not that the, that the character in the virtual reality, it's not like, well, my avatar just isn't aware. Well, of course your avatar is not aware. The avatar is just a, a bunch of data. It's pixels on a screen. So, you see, it's the... Am I, un- am I untangling it a little for you? So we do yeah, have, we sure. Do have I mean, what will. it comes down to is that the self that I think of as being myself is really an avatar, and that's just a data pack, and he deludes himself into believing that he's more. No. Yeah. He- yeah. Okay. Hey, listen. We've got a question out of the chat room, and then I'm going to come back. I, I, I'm going to pursue this a little more, if you're all right. But Mark says uh, Darwin's theory is based on direct observation of the natural world, which can be tested uh, or proven. Can Tom's views be held to the same standard? I think I already answered that, but please go ahead. I'm... Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, absolutely, uh, we can. Let's see. Um, well, we have. Uh... We can go to the physics end, and where we have experiment that verifies these views. Um, we can predict what happens in quantum mechanic cases because we understand why it is that particles are probability distributions and how that works. The double slit experiment and those sorts of things are not so mysterious. Quantum mechanics is not so mysterious anymore. So we do that. Uh, we have, like I said, uh, um, Brian Whitlock, he can predict the uh, particle uh, uh, map, if you will, from his uh, computer science. So we have things like that, but more, more like Darwin, we can predict the outcomes of, of the way people interact. I can tell you that if you get rid of your fear and if you learn to become love, you will be
be a happy person. You'll enjoy your life. Life will be great. And uh, most of the problems and issues and things that irritate or annoy you will disappear in your life. And that we can, we can measure as well. Now, in terms of things like remote viewing, oh, there's scads of that going on. There's a lot of people doing good research in remote viewing, and they will tell you that the statistics are very, very much in favor of what they are seeing and doing being real. And the same goes with uh, lucid dreaming, out of body. They're not quite as advanced in their research as the remote viewing because they're harder to do than remote viewing. But in it, there's tons of data that, that uh, would say that the theory of consciousness that I have is verifiable by experiment. Okay. Uh, you know, in the setup piece, well, maybe I shouldn't leave this remote viewing for a minute. I, I shouldn't. We had uh, Major Ed Dames on our show not long ago, and so I'm going to have to ask you about that. And you know who he is, and one of the original remote viewers. He worked with Ingo Swan, the late Ingo Swan. Um, and he says, you know, look, uh, the Earth is a crispy critter. Now, he did make this prophecy, if you will. Uh, that this was going to happen in 2011 when he was on our show in late 2010, and of course it's 2012, and there's been no such thing. But he has since been continuing to suggest that, you know, solar flares are going to take us out. Uh, within your your system, the tow, uh, the simulation, you know, is that a probability? Um. You mean what he says? Is that is that yeah, likely yeah. to happen? Is that what you're yeah, asking? Right. I would say uh, no. That okay. is not likely to happen. Well, then why would he get that, right? He's a very talented remote viewer. Right. Well, there's, there's several reasons. Um, typically, remote viewers have, have gained their credibility by doing double and triple blind experiments. This is where somebody comes out uh, with an envelope, and the person who has, holds the envelope doesn't know what's inside of it. It's been that that thing that's inside of it is a is an address, basically, uh, maybe a Latin long for some point on the world, and somebody else put that there, and they pick it up, hold the envelope. They don't give it to the remote viewer. They say there's a there's a coordinate in this envelope at a certain place. Tell me what's there, right. and that's it. So the remote viewer doesn't handle it. The person handling the envelope doesn't know what's in it, and then the remote viewer tells them what's there. Okay, that's what they do. And the reason they do that is because the biggest thing that makes it not work well is a person's own intellect. A person's own ego gets involved. They start interpreting the data. They start making things up. And as you say, they don't know the difference between what they're making up and what they're getting. It all seems the same to them. So that's why we have this double and triple blind protocols. Now, when remote viewers aren't viewing coordinates in an envelope but they're looking at the future you see it's hard to get that same level of distance between their own egos their own knowledge base their own experience their own expectations and the data they get so as soon as they move away from that then they're not quite as accurate they start it starts falling apart that's one reason so things like uh, what's going to happen in the next, you know, couple of years are likely to be a lot more problematical and, and error-ridden than, than the coordinates in the envelope. 
The second thing is that there is a thing called the science certainty principle that I come up with in my books, and what basically that says is that there has to remain a certain amount of uncertainty, you know, around any any uh, what we we call it, I guess, a prediction or anything that a person is going to do that's outside of normal. In other words, the paranormal. If you get out of uh, strictly uh, uh, measurable science then you have to have a certain amount of uncertainty associated with that within the natural limits. So that, well, natural limits have to do with each individual item we're talking about. You know, that, uh, I guess I'm getting, I'm confusing things here, so let me, let me back up a little bit. Anyway, there is, there is uncertainty involved in it, and you can only get information within these certainty limits. You your information may be wrong. It's not necessarily going to be perfect. And once you get a wide audience, when you come on an Eldon Taylor show and you make predictions, the probability that you're going to get that right then goes down even more. Okay, so okay. that's just the nature. That's just the nature of the system. And if you get your ego involved in what you're doing, you become less and less effective. So we see that a lot of the remote viewers who are very gifted when they're doing very controlled studies kind of get um, full of themselves, start doing other things, their ego gets involved in it, and pretty soon they're making big mistakes that kind of discredit all the good work that they had done before. And that's a shame because the work they've done before is really, really good. But that pattern tends to happen a whole lot, and sometimes even the system will purposely give them misinformation just to, you know, it's just a, a feedback for, uh, you know, get your ego out of it. I see. All right. Well, that would explain maybe hits and misses in the whole area of parapsychology. Yeah, Let me ask you this, Tom. In, in the beginning, in the setup, I told you that, you know, there were three things we wanted to know, who the messenger, mm -hmm. messenger was, the message. I think we've got that. Here's the third part, you know, why should the average person care about your theory? What, what's its practical value? What's their take-home message? Okay, well, the reason that it's valuable to the average person and not just some kind of theoretical thing that, you know, eggheads think about in their spare time okay. is that part of what we derive here is your purpose being here. You are an individuated unit of consciousness, and as such, you have a reason for existing. It didn't just exist for no reason. And here you are in this virtual reality, and you have a purpose here. Now, like any game, if you're just wandering clueless on the playing field, you're not going to do very well. If you understand the game, and you understand what you're doing, and why you're here, and the nature of this reality, you can do so much better. So here we are trying to evolve the quality of our consciousness. That's one way of saying lowering our entropy. Right. And if we understand that, then there's, there's ways, there's steps that we can take, things that we can do to help that process along. As we succeed, we find out everything works really good for us. Most of our problems are self-created. And uh, it makes a difference between the quality, you know, the quality of your consciousness is, is uh, correlated with the quality of your life and the quality of your experience. So that's why an individual should be interested, because it will change their whole life. It'll change their relationships. It'll change, 
you know how they re, you know how they relate to their spouses, to their children, uh, to their coworkers, uh, how they see the world, and the way they act, the way they are. So real change has to happen at what I call the being level, and that's what this is about. It's about being differently so that you are in consonance with with your purpose here, and everything just works really fine if you do that. All right, Tom, you're going to be here in Spokane, my favorite city, the Lilac City, in just a week and a half. Uh, and you're going to be talking about consciousness evolution. We haven't really addressed uh, the nature of the evolution of consciousness. Well, we have indirectly. Um, you know, in a, in, a, in a minute, maybe 90 seconds, tell us about your uh, your visit here, how people can learn more about it, and how they can learn more about you, please. Okay. Uh, well, to learn about this particular event in Spokane, I suggest you go to www.mbtevents.com. And if you go there, that those are my organizers, and they set up this, and they will tell you, you know, how to get more information on it, you know, where it's going to be, the times, the places to stay, and all about that. So now, Is that MBT as in Mary M- Delta M- Tango? MBT is in my big toe. Okay, MBT. MBT events.com. So that's where to go for that. Uh, What I'll be talking about there is I won't be doing the theory in a lot of detail because it's only one day. To to really talk about my big toe, it takes a couple of full days to do that. uh, But we will be talking about uh, consciousness, how it evolves, uh, the process that's got us where we are, the way that we can change our lives, um, how it is that, uh, that that this evolution is coming to a head and that we have certain abilities, capabilities now, I guess, in this evolutionary process to succeed where before we really haven't. So it's, it's some of how do I deal with the world? You know, we're going to have students there, and students are usually very interested in fixing things, you know, Fixing the world, changing things. Uh, you're young, you're 18, you're 22, and you want to go out and help the world be a better place. You want it to matter. And we're going to talk about what you can do and, and what's not so good to do to matter, to help change okay. the world. All right. Well, you know, I don't think it's just students who want to make a change in today's uh, world, but I'll tell you this. I strongly recommend that you do take this in. If you can, I will be there. Uh, Tom has been gracious enough to let me be one of his guests, and uh, I highly recommend it, as well as his book, his trilogy, My Big Toe. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank you all, especially you, Tom, for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. All right. Wherever you are in the world, do remember this. Until next time, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.